You know, church family, one of the most often neglected spiritual disciplines, at least in my life, is that of remembering. Throughout the scriptures, God commands his people, remember, remember, remember. Why? It's because often we forget things in which he has done. And so what I want to do for just a moment is I want us to remember what God has done in our midst here within our faith family in the past month. January was a pretty significant month in the life and rhythm of our church. We not only sent out 26 people to go plant a church at the University of Montevallo, we ordained seven new deacons. We had the opportunity to celebrate and honor Topper Reed, a man who served faithfully for the, to the local church for almost four decades. We had our largest Disciple Now weekend for teenagers that we've ever had, in which we saw multiple students come to faith in Christ. We've already had eight teenagers who've been baptized uh, from that event with more who are signed up, ready to get baptized soon. It's been amazing to see what God has done in our church. We, last Sunday, had a concert here in which our praise team led us in worship before the throne, and we saw people come to know Christ last Sunday. Sunday night as we were gathered in here. At the close of the service today, we get to vote as a congregation upon bringing a new staff member onto our team to provide leadership. And so I'm just so thankful for what the Lord is doing in our church. I also want to give you an encouraging update of how we're doing financially as a church. If you look at the screen, I want you to see this Last year, in 2018, our budget was $3.12 million. Well, as a church, together, we closed out the year at 3.162, bringing us to an overage of more than $42,000 over budget. Can we praise God for that? That is the largest one-year offering that we have had as a church in nine years. And I am just so proud of you. I'm thankful for your generosity and your sacrifice. We're doing this together. I also want you to see the next slide of where we are financially. That beginning of 2018, so January of last year, in the last 13 months since then, we have paid off $717,000 on principle on our church debt, bringing us as of Friday down to $8,579,000. We as a church, we are attacking this debt together. We're knocking it out together. And then simultaneously, we are reaching people for Christ. We're gonna continue to play offense with the gospel. We wanna continue to reach more people for Jesus, which is why I want you to see on the next screen, this upcoming year, we have increased our budget to 325 we want to see more people come to faith in Christ. We want to launch new ministry initiatives. We want to send more resources to the nations so that more people might treasure Christ above all things. And simultaneously, I want to hold up the go for four in which I want to challenge our church. Let's go for the $4 million. Every dollar given above the 3.25 goes directly on principle towards debt. And so we not only get to retire the debt that we have as a church, we're also reaching people with the, Christ, with the gospel for Christ. We're doing this together. 
And so I want to take just a moment and I want us just to pray and just thank the Lord for what he is doing in our church as we're seeing lives who are changed by Jesus. I want to praise him for his generosity towards us financially, but I want us to keep going for more. Let's see those baptismal waters stirred. Let's see marriages reconciled and families finding peace through Christ. Let's keep reaching people who are far from God and bring them into a right relationship with himself. And he can only do it. He alone is the one who does it. So let's take time now to thank him and then let's ask him for more. Father, I praise you and thank you for what you're doing in your church. How beautiful is the body of Christ. Lord, you are making us more like Jesus. And I praise you for the salvations that we've already seen this year of seeing young teenagers and kids and adults coming to faith in Christ. God, give us more. Would you give us Shelby County for Christ? God, we pray we would see lives change for eternity, Lord, because of what you're doing in our church. Lord, would you use us as your people to be ambassadors for Christ, to make much of Jesus wherever we go. God, I'm so grateful, Lord, for the financial generosity of your people. And I pray that, God, as we launch into this new year, Lord, we would continue to be sacrificial in our giving, being generous. Lord, we want to see more people treasure Christ and be faithful stewards with what you've called us to do here as a faith family. So, God, give us wisdom and grace. Continue to use us to reach the nations and our neighbors for Christ. God, we love you and praise you for what you're doing. God, we want more of you. We want you and we need you. So God, would you come and change us and make us like your son? We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. It was 1850 and a British man headed to California because he had heard that someone had struck gold. Hoping he could strike it rich, the man worked his way there, and he did. He struck gold, and he claimed his riches. On his way back home, he decided to go back through a different route. He went through New Orleans. As he entered into the city, he saw a big commotion taking place as a big crowd had gathered together. He heard shouting and laughter and numbers being screamed. And so as he got closer, he realized that he had stumbled upon an African slave auction. He saw men and women and children being separated from one another and put up on a block of wood, stark naked. These plantation owners would start calling out numbers and bids to buy these slaves for themselves. Appalled by what he saw, a young teenage girl was next up on the block. He heard people around him laughing and making inappropriate comments about this woman. Bothered by what he heard, he saw the bids for this teenage girl go higher and higher and higher. Well, right before the auctioneer slammed his gavel, the man cried out a number that was twice of what had already been stated. He purchased the girl. The girl was brought to him. She spit in his face and said, I hate you. He paid no attention. He grabbed her by the hand and began walking up and down the streets of New Orleans as if he was looking for something. He finally found the office that he was looking for, and he turned to the girl and said, stay here. 
he went inside and began talking with the man behind the desk. The man behind the desk looked out the window and saw the slave girl, and he started yelling at the man. The yelling became screaming. The screaming became shouting. But the man paid no attention, and he pulled the gold out of his pocket, and he put it on the desk. The man looked at the girl, looked at the gold, shook his head, and pulled out a piece of paper. The two men signed the document. The British man walked out into the street, handed it to the girl, and said, you're free. She once again spat in his face and said, I hate you. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. You're free. I've paid for your freedom. You're free to go. Tears started welling up in her eyes. She looked down at this document and just kept whispering over and over, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. She looked up at the man and said, you set me free. Now all I want to do with my life is serve you. That is a picture of what God has done for you in the gospel. He sent Jesus to go and buy your freedom at a great cost to himself. And at the moment that you believed the gospel, you realized all that Christ had done for you. It was then that you said, God, all I want to do is live for you. That's the point the apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter 12. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're finishing up our sermon series through, uh, as a faith family, through the sermon series called Take It All, in which we have been posturing our hearts towards a, a heart of worship towards God the start of this year. We've studied that God's call for us is that we are indeed to worship him in corporate gatherings like this. We are to worship him in private, in quiet times. Indeed, we are to worship him with our heart and with our mind and with our soul as we saw last week. Next week, we're going to be launching a brand new sermon series in the book of Esther. It's called Unseen Sovereigns. We're going to see together how God is working in the background, even when you don't see it. And I can't wait to gather together as a faith family and to walk through this marvelous Old Testament book together. You know, what's interesting about Romans is it's the, it's the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. It is rich with gospel doctrine and truth about who God is and what he has done. He starts off in Romans chapter one by saying all Gentiles are unrighteous. Then he gets to Romans two and he says all Jews are unrighteous. Romans three, the whole world is unrighteous for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there's good news. You can be made right with God through faith, Romans four, just like Abraham. But our faith is not in Abraham, Romans five, our faith is in Christ. 
Paul says in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, when you put your faith in Christ, God gives you a new life, Romans 6. But in this new life, you're gonna struggle, Romans 7. Paul says, I don't do the things that I should and I do the things that I shouldn't. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body? Oh, thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The good news is Romans 8. God gives us his Holy Spirit who gives us the victory. Romans 8, 1, the very verse in the Bible that I think should make every believer stand up and dance. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Unfortunately, Romans 9, Israel has rejected Jesus. They have rejected God's son. But the good news is, Romans 10, that Jews and Gentiles, anybody and everybody can be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Romans 11, one day Israel will be saved. There's coming a day in which Jews who reject the gospel, they will come to a faith in Jesus when they trust in him by faith. God keeps his promise. So Paul closes out Romans 11 with a declaration of worship. He is celebrating what God has done. It's interesting here. He closes out with a hymn of praise in Romans 11. In light of this great doctrine, this great truth that God has revealed to us in light of his son, it leads Paul to worship. He says of Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of his riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. And then Paul makes a pivot in chapter 12, verse 1, the, the, the focus goes from theology to now application. So in light of Romans 1 through 11, in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, Paul now in chapter 12, verse 1 and following begins talking about the application of the doctrine. This is what it looks like practically in your life of how to live out the gospel. And he says this, Romans 12, verse 1, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here we see in the text that we are to live for Christ. Indeed, we live lives of worship. But what does that look like? Where does this come from? I want you to see first that living for Christ comes from a gospel motivation. It's a gospel motivation. Verse one, Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, Paul uses the word therefore. Now, whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible, you have to see what it's there for. So you have to go backwards. 
You have to go see what is leading up to this truth. So Paul is saying, in light of Romans 1 through 11, in light of, in light of this great gospel, this is the mercy you have received in Christ. This is what you are to go and now do. You see, the gospel is your motivation for living a life of worship. Why? Because God has been merciful to you. Now, it's important that we kind of get our definitions straight here. I've put these in your notes. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Okay, forgiveness, adoption, eternal life. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Wrath, judgment, hell. So before Paul tells us how we are to live, he reminds us that we live in light of the mercies of God towards us in Christ. Because of what Jesus did by going to the cross for us, that we are no longer under condemnation, that we have been set free from God's wrath, because God's wrath fell squarely upon his own son at the cross. The gospel is how we are to move forward, and Paul here is saying, you are no longer getting what you deserve. You see, believers worship Christ with their lives in light of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Jesus paid an infinite debt that you could never pay. And he gladly went to the cross. You could not save yourself. And so as a work of sovereign grace, Jesus comes and he makes a way forward for you to be rescued by God, brought into a right relationship with him. And then that becomes our motivation for living a life of worship. But I also want you to see that your second motivation is a personal plea. Look at verse one. Paul says, I urge you. That word urge there, it's not a command. It's an appeal. It is a pleading. Some translations say beseech. It's as if Paul is imploring the church at Rome, I'm not going to command you to live for Christ. He's saying, listen, have we not seen over the past 11 chapters what God has done for us in Christ? So here he's more like a father urging his children to do the right thing. This word carries the idea of taking a knee, of getting eye to eye, and wanting to have just an urging. I want you to know how much I love you, but more than that, I want you to see how much Jesus loves you. Have we not seen over the last 11 chapters all that God's done for you in Christ? So here he is, he's like a teacher who's urging their, their student towards their potential. It's like a parent who is trying to teach their children, this is the way you are to walk in wisdom. He's like a pastor who's saying, you're my people and I love you and this is the way you are to go. This is a personal plea in which Paul is saying, I urge you with all that is within me. See, he's not leveraging his apostolic authority He's not saying, I'm the apostle Paul, God has called, God has chosen me, this is what you're gonna do. That's not what he's doing there. Here he's saying, I urge you. I am beseeching you. I am pleading with you to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live a life of worship. 
in essence, he's saying, I want you to want this. It's like, this is our goal as parents. Like, we don't want our kids to do the right thing because we said so. We want them to do the right thing because they want to. Right? We want their hearts to be so overwhelmed with love and with truth. They're like, okay, I want to make the right choice. I'm not going to do it because I have to. I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do, but I desire it. That's the word that Paul's using here. He's saying, I'm urging you. I want you to do this in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done for you. I want you to see thirdly, the living for Christ comes from a desire to worship God with all of your life. Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Paul is calling upon believers to present our bodies, in essence, all of who we are, our minds, our hearts, our souls, our very bodies, we offer them to God in worship. Well, here, Paul is using Old Testament imagery to describe the kind of life that we are to live. You see, under the Old Covenant, Jews would bring an animal to the temple for a sacrifice. They would present the animal to the priest as an offering of worship to God. Well, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, is the perfect sacrifice taken for us at the cross. Well, now, the apostle is saying, in light of what Christ has done for you, through his perfect sacrifice on the cross, you now worship him, how? By offering yourself. You're saying, I'm not bringing an animal as a form of sacrifice. I'm bringing myself. I'm saying, God, here am I. I am the living sacrifice. Take all of me. My life is yours. I want to worship through my life. You see, because Christ gave his all for you, you give your all to him. You see, it's interesting how Paul uses wordplay here to teach us how to worship. He uses the phrase living sacrifice. It's an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron is when two contradictions hold hands. It's kind of like a, a tragic comedy. Jumbo shrimp. That's uh, pretty awful. Okay, it's an oxymoron. Something you teachers deal with on a daily basis. It's organized chaos. It's two things that don't really go together, but they do here. You see, sacrifices are dead. They're not living. But Paul says you are a living sacrifice. How is that possible? Because when you came to Christ, you died. Your old self died with Christ. His death is now your death. His resurrection is now your resurrection. And so now you are a living sacrifice. Your old self has died with Christ. The new life is now risen and living with Christ. So now you are the sacrifice who comes before the Lord saying, God, take my life and use it however you see fit. You are the living sacrifice. You are the offering to God saying, God, take, take my life and use it however you see fit. Question, how's your worship? As you evaluate your life, 
Are you living a life of worship? Can people look at the way that you're living and say, that is someone who is worshiping with their life? You see, you get to worship at your job by working hard and honoring your employer and being excellent at what you do. You get to worship as a student by getting good grades and studying hard and taking your tests and honoring your teachers and being a good friend, but ultimately doing all of this for the glory of Jesus. You get to worship on the ball field by playing with excellence to your very best ability, by honoring your coach and giving effort and giving your teammates your best and you speak in a manner that honors Christ and those around you. You get to worship by your driving. You get to worship by loving your children and teaching them the way they should go and following Christ. You get to worship by following the leadership of your parents, even when you don't feel like it. You see, worship is not contained in this room on Sunday mornings. Worship is every day of your life. You're a living sacrifice. Your worship doesn't stop at 12 o'clock on Sunday. It is every day of your life living for the glory of King Jesus. Hear me, you only get one life on this planet until you are launched into eternity. May I say to you, would you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Would you live a life of worship of pointing people to Jesus, saying, God, take all of my life. You have access to all of me. I am here for you. May I say to you, it's time to get off the couch and climb onto the altar. Do not allow selfishness or laziness to take root in your heart, but rather you're to climb up there and say, God, here's my life. Take it and use it however you see fit. Not much longer until I'm going to come see you face to face. And so while I've still got life and breath, God, use my life as worship, as a way of bringing glory and honor to the one who knows me and made me and saved me and called me to himself. I say to your life is saying, God, here am I, take all of me. You see, worship includes honoring Jesus every day with your life. It's every day. Saying, Jesus, I want to live a life of worship today. I choose you, Jesus, you're better. You're far more satisfying. I was made for you, not for myself. And so I am going to bring forth to you everything I've got and I want to worship you with my life. Well, how do we do that? What's that look like practically? Well, on your notes, I've got two, two ways here we see from the text. How do we live a life of worship? The first is this, reject the world. Reject the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to this age. As believers, we don't live according to the pattern of this age. This age, which is this world system, that's under the influence of Satan. The world rejects the authority of Christ. 
James says in James 4.4, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. So we have to choose right now, do you want the praise of people that's temporary or do you want the praise of God that is eternal? My concern is that there's far too many believers who are seeking the praise of man rather than the praise of God. We must never act like the rest of the world. We've been chosen and changed by Christ. Therefore, we hold a drastically different value system than the rest of the world. And if you're gonna live a life of worship that points to Jesus, it means you need to be prepared to be called backwards, narrow-minded, a bigot. I've been called a Nazi. Why? Because I'm rejecting the world. I'm holding fast to Jesus. We're a people of the book. We're going to be hated for our stance on marriage, being between one man and one woman for life. We're going to be despised for declaring with boldness that life begins at conception. And that any and all abortion is evil and not from the Lord. We're going to be hated because we hold to the fact that there are two genders that God made. Male and female whom he made in his image. Are you prepared to be hated by the world? Or do you want the praise of man? You've got to choose. Paul is saying here, verse two, you gotta reject the world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this age, but rather, number two, renew your mind. Renew your mind. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transform, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. So just as a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly, just as a tadpole is transformed into a frog, there is a transforming, there is a renewing that takes place in our minds as we are becoming more and more like Christ. We see the ultimate transformation we see taking place in Matthew 17, where Jesus is taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he temporarily takes on a glorified body. He is transformed before the eyes of three disciples. But then we see that we are the ones who will one day be ultimately transformed, in which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we are transformed into the image from glory to glory. So how do you keep from being conformed to the pattern of this world? It's through consistent and deliberate renewing of your mind. You discipline your mind to think biblically, which means you saturate your thoughts with scripture. You allow the Bible to be the filter in which you view the world. You allow the Bible to renew your mind and to change the way that you think and you relate with the world. And when you do, it is then that you will, verse two, be able to discern the will of God. So here's the challenge for this week. The impact point is this, examine your heart and offer your entire life to God in worship. Examine your heart. What are you holding back from the Lord? 
And would you come and say, God, I'm gonna offer all of my life to you. You can have all that I am. All that I have is yours. Question, what are you holding back from the Lord? What part of your life are you saying, God, this is, this is mine. You can have all of that, but this, this belongs to me. I say to you, to live a life of worship is to open up your hands and say, God, you can have all of me, all of my money, all of my family, all of my time, all of my choices, all of my desires, my job, my school, my ball team, my neighborhood, my political beliefs, God, they're yours. Why? It's because when we look at the Bible, it's there that we see, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. And it is from there that you want to live for Jesus. Jesus.